Blog Talk Radio. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if maybe I was on uh, I was on uh, mute the whole time. So uh, if you didn't hear the introduction, I guess I should do the introduction again. So welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented talk radio show and podcast. Each broadcast, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership, and this is your host, Brian Perkins. So I'm excited because we have uh, Ms. Lisa Wilson, who is the founder of CARE, uh, and uh, we're going to hear a little bit about this organization, the Coalition on Anti-Racism Education. So welcome, Lisa. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Perkins. I'm excited about tonight's show. I'm glad to have you. Um, and so to our listeners uh, who have been with us for a while, uh, faithful listeners, welcome back. And thank you for being a part of our family of about 5,000 listeners every month. And to our new listeners, we're glad to, that you have joined us. Uh, so, Lisa, I, we only have 30 minutes, and I, I just want to jump right in and first have you tell us a little bit about your uh, organization, CARE, uh, and maybe just a little bit about uh, how it started, how you got into this work, but uh, we really want to hear about this coalition on anti-racism education. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity to share with your your faithful listeners and the new ones that are coming on board. So, um, you know, what we founded the coalition on anti-racism education. I say we because it's for women. Um, I extended the the founder role, and we're all now equal uh, partners. We call ourselves co-founders. Um, I was the principal founder right on the heels of the entire thing with George Floyd. And as you know, most people have been referring to what we're experiencing in the United States as a dual pandemic. And so um, just feeling really helpless, but at the same time full of hope, wanting to kind of pivot how our children are seeing, you know, people of color being mistreated and just the systemic racism that goes on and the lack of the wealth growing and asset building in the BIPOC community and really wanting to see something different. So I started a Thursday evening unfiltered talk for people just to come in. It was designed for educators. I'm an educator. I've been in the field of early childhood for over 20 years, and I've been teaching college now for the last, this will be my ninth year. And so for me, it was really important to be able to bring community members in and bring educators in and youth just to talk about social justice-related topics so teachers could be better prepared to talk with their students. And so out of that blossomed this wonderful collective that we currently have now that is myself, my sister Sarah, Letty Garza, and Christy Norris, who are all the co-founders for this collective. 
And we decided that through our Thursday night discussions, we started to see people just showing up and wanting resources on anti-racism. So I thought it would be a good idea for us to put together a curriculum that could be used as a teacher preparation course for all teachers and teachers just to prepare themselves and become what we like to call radical empaths. So in order for anybody to get on this journey of I want to be an anti-racist, they really need to be able to exercise what it means to be a radical empath. And so that's what we did. We designed this curriculum with a bunch of curriculum writers. We have people from all different, you know, um, different industry sectors, but also educators from Cal State, private schools, and community colleges that helped to write the curriculum. So, which is just really exciting. Um, Kim Barker, Rachel Johnson, and then Dr. Alex Tatar meetings on Thursday nights. It's just been really a wonderful collective work to try to bring awareness around social justice-related issues, systemic racism, and how that's really impacted the BIPOC community present day. And so what we've done with this course is we've made it asynchronous. Anybody can take it. And we have a lot of colleges that are really interested in having their teachers take this course alongside of their other credentialing work in order to be a teacher at this point at some of the colleges in California. So, you know, the coalition is a place, and it's a collective. It's an opportunity for people just to be themselves and share their story. We're really big about people sharing their story, their ancestral roots, and connecting it to action. So that's what the Flex is all about. Yeah. Oh, wow. Thanks. Thanks for, for sharing that. Uh, so you're, you're fairly new. So it sounds like uh, just this year uh, that the, in terms of the collaborative, uh, you've uh, come together and, and formed this collaborative and it sounds like it's really taken off. And I'm sure uh, you're, what you're hearing is that it is very timely and needed. Yes, absolutely. People are yeah. really engaged in dialogue with us and realizing that, you know, not that there's anything wrong with reading books on your own in a one-off, di- uh, you know, a one-off webinar series or whatever, and that's great, but it's just, it's not even scratching the surface for what it means to be a radical empath and be in a place where you're going to be a change agent. So, sure. you know, we take it seriously at the collective, yeah, what we do. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for sharing. So i got to ask, um, so you, you, you're, you've talked about anti-racist. Uh, she's she dropped. Okay, so um, we're gonna wait for Lisa to call back in. Something happened. Uh, got a small technical problem here, uh, and so just ask you to be patient with us. Uh, we'll be right back with you, and hopefully Lisa will join back in in just a moment. So be right back. Hello, Lisa. Are you there? Yeah, the I don't know what happened. The call just dropped. Okay. So nope. No problem. Work. Nope. No problem. Okay. I just was. Uh, we're just gonna wait. And uh, glad you're back. So I, I have to ask uh, this yes. question. Um, so you were talking about so your program is about anti-racist. I don't quite know the difference, and I'm sure there are other people that are out there that are wondering, so what's the difference between the anti-racist work and anti-discriminatory work? Is it just that there's the focus on racism when you're saying anti-racist? But tell us a little bit about what you see as the kind of the primary differences between anti-racism and anti-discriminatory. 
Yeah, it's a great question. They're they're not one and the same. You know, discriminatory it deals with more than just race. You know, it could be sexual orientation, um, wealth, anything of that nature when it comes to anti-discriminatory type of work. And that's definitely very much needed. And usually organizations have checks and balances to make sure that that's happening within hiring practices. Anti-racist work really has to do with tearing down the under, really tearing down the construct of racism since races are something that was created. It's not actually even scientific. It doesn't even make sense. And so once, um, one thing that we've decided in our collective and why, you know, we kind of shed the titles of like a hierarchy is because we all just read that book, Isabel Wilkerson, about caste. It's entitled Caste. It's a longer title, but it's called mm-hmm. Caste by Isabel Wilkerson. And it's dynamic. It really does showcase how the United States is a country built on ownership and that titles are something that – there's nothing wrong with the title, but there's something wrong with people thinking that they're higher or better than someone else and are deserving more than someone else. And so how it was constructed in the United States is, is all, it's all about the pigmentation. So race is something that is a social construct. It's made up. And so that's the difference with anti-racism. We're really trying to be done away with the racism and the race, you know, but not necessarily when it comes to ethnicity and your ancestral past, there's nothing wrong with that at all. So when people make those references, like, you know, we're all, um, a melting pot in the United States. Well, that's assimilation. You know, that dates way back to a playwright back in the 40s, I believe, or 20s. But, you know, the idea was that immigrants came here and they assimilated into American culture. We're all Americans, but you can be African-American and Mexican-American or however you want to identify where you still have your ancestral past. So anti-racism is where you're not looking at the three races. You know, you're either African or you're Caucasian, you know, or, you know, you're Asian. It's, it's being able to dismantle that kind of idea um, and to be able to just enter into a space where we are learning about one another. Um, and, yes, your, your ancestral past, plays a, you know, plays a, into who you are, and you know, and it, it does and how you were brought up, but it shouldn't hinder your opportunities. So that's, that's the difference with the anti-racism work um, and, and non-discrimination or anti-discrimination. Sure, sure. And that, that makes a lot of sense. And so I, I'm sure the collaborative has has spent some time thinking about uh, the more recent um, information that has come out of uh, this current administration around the ban for racial sensitivity training. Everything you've said made a lot of sense to me as to why we wouldn't want to uh, proceed with uh, or I should say, uh, perpetuate this uh, r- racist system, and mm-hmm. all the work that I hear around anti-racist is something that has now been banned by uh, our current administration. Uh, what what do you what are your thoughts about why someone might think that it is uh, a bad thing to have an anti-racist agenda? Uh, I've I've heard a lot of people say things like anti-racist, the work on anti-racism is actually anti-white. Can you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, so first off, you know, when we're talking about just how America views immigration laws and people coming in to want to be a United States citizen, when you look at the process of how a person becomes a U.S. citizen that wasn't naturalized here, 
it is actually said in the verbiage that they have to assimilate. There is an assimilation that is expected. So that's shutting off kind of like your ancestral, you know, past in a way. And so in saying that, I think at a federal level, there's an expectation that, okay, we're all Americans. Why do we have to have all these different, you know, um, titles, you know, or identities in order to be Americans? Well, that would be great if that's how America was actually constructed, but it wasn't. So America was built on owning the bodies and, and cheap or free labor to build the United States. And so you can't, you know, reconcile your present without knowing your past. So the work of anti-racism is really about knowing the truth, you know, an unsanitized understanding and approach to history, American history, you know, what happened to, you know, the Mexicans that owned a very a huge part of the United States or the indigenous people and how they're continuing to suffer, right? So it's, it's really just about knowing the truth and then setting the record straight and then changing the laws that really continue to, to tie into slavery, you know, the 13th, the 13th Amendment and looking at the debt servitude and looking at the prison population. It's the same thing that's been going on for decades and decades, and it's work that I mean, the Black Panthers, Angela Davis, I mean, people before them, people that will never know that have done the kind of work that, you know, we're doing or continuing to do. I think on a federal level, I don't necessarily, um, I, I, I understand where it's coming from on a fundamental level when it comes to what America prides themselves on and what we look at as Americans, that we're all American and we're all the human race. Like I said, that's a great fantasy, but that's going to take a lot of work to get there. It's going to take commitment to dismantle a very systemic racist system that was built by, you know, white supremacy. And being white is not a race, you know. So when people want to identify mm-hmm. as white, it's, it's not ethnicity. You know, it's a state mm-hmm. of mind. It's made up. So mm-hmm. I think part of it, why they, want to, why they look at it like it's an anti-white space, because white is, I mean, white supremacy is something this country was built not their ancestral roots so it is anti-white it's anti-white supremacy i mean that's Mm. really what it is so i think a lot of times because people don't want to deal on the truth and they don't want to get down to the nuts and bolts and the verbiage of stuff people get stuck on that term anti-racist you know they get Mm -hmm. really stuck on it so we as a collective decided okay well what does it mean to be an anti-racist it means to have radical empathy it means to be able to identify and hear and and understand someone's story and understand that they have their own individual identity. I'm not going to group them in. I'm not going to have a stereotype threat in my mind about how this person is because of what I've seen on TV because of my social awareness or cognition or implicit bias. I'm going to deal with this person for who they are, who they're presenting me to be on an individual level. And that's really what it means to be an anti-racist. It means to be a person that walks in truth and present and in power but I do think part of it has to do with the verbiage, and I think when it comes to federal government, it's just really the lack of understanding and knowledge when it also comes to our history and what's being taught to our students in K-12 world, you know, or the lack thereof. Sure, right? sure. So, yeah, and that's, that's why the 1619 Project was so amazing, and, and now there's this introduction of the 1776 Project to make people patriots, but we don't have to be one or the other. I'm a patriot. My father served in the United States military. I have several family members that are still serving. I'm a patriot. However, I'm also an anti-racist and I'm a black biracial woman. So I can be all those things, 
right and, and still have sure. peace within. Yeah. Sure. So I sure. Hope that Thank kind of, you. I hope that kind of answers yeah, no, that, yeah. that absolutely, absolutely. And I'm I'm sure a lot of our listeners, uh, for those of you who have just joined us, you've joined the Perkins platform and we have uh, Lisa Wilson, who's the founder of CARE, uh, Coalition on Anti-Racism Education. Uh, Lisa is here talking about uh, work on anti-racist uh, curriculum and she and along with a number of other colleagues have uh, started this coalition and uh, it's growing uh, to discuss anti-racism education uh, throughout and, and with the hopes of, of reaching teachers and other educators, leaders uh, to better serve uh, a variety of, of cultures and, and ethnicities. Uh, for those of you who are interested in calling in and speaking to Lisa, um, our call-in number tonight is 657-383-1481. Again, 657-383-1481. Um, and so, I, Lisa, I want to go back. I, and again, thank you for that terrific explanation of the difference and especially the emphasis on um, breaking down some of these uh, uh, biases and um, issues that come up. Uh, who are you essentially working with? Do you find yourself working with uh, groups of, of white educators mostly? And I guess just to, to get a sense of who's, who's been mostly interested in, in doing this work. Uh, the reason I ask that question is because sometimes uh, we've found that a lot of the work that happens is among people who are predisposed even to uh, to try to change the way things are, and and mm-hmm. sometimes the people that need it most aren't getting it, and so I'm yeah. just wondering, especially with the mandate saying that federal monies couldn't be spent for such you know anti-racism and um, and anti-bias training. I don't know why that would be an issue, but but a lot of people. Um, that need it aren't going to get it. Uh, so who mm-hmm. who do you find your who are you getting calls from uh, essentially that are saying we we want you to come in? Are you are you do you find yourself preaching to the choir or are you uh, making some headway in some of those difficult spaces? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, you know, it's both. It's a, it's definitely a mix. What what we what I get a lot of is organizations that reach out, corporations that want their staff to get training, and reluctantly you have staff that come. Um, some of them are very receptive, and others, you know, are not. Others, you know, are not wanting to engage. And it could be such a myriad of reasons. This is going on over Zoom and you know people's attention span and kids being at home, and there's just so many kind of like hidden, you know, variables at times that people aren't going to be totally candid about why they're not totally engaged. And and mm-hmm. then there's also people that, I mean, this is, I call this not just hard work, I call it heart work. So this type of work requires you to be completely honest and vulnerable to yourself. And it requires you to do that metacognition. It requires you to think why you, why you're thinking that thing that you just thought about, which, mm-hmm. which takes a lot, a lot of mental mapping 
And a lot of people can't be at that place. And especially now with the pandemic, job loss, um, children being at home, just the feeling of hopelessness, this type of work is even more challenging because the people that are reluctant and that don't want to necessarily come, sometimes they're forced to come. It's a a mandated meeting, you know, and I'll be mixed in with uh, like a, a a required, you know, staff training or something, and I'll come in and I'll present on usually it's implicit bias or understanding biases, um, anti-bias work and what that looks like. A lot of people have shied away from the word, the whole word anti-racism ever since the federal, you know, executive order. And so sometimes, yeah, we do have a reluctant space, and then sometimes, you know, we have people that are overly eager, that want to get in, that think they know a lot about anti-racism. They really think they understand equity. They'll say things like, I'm doing this for you instead of I'm doing it with you. So they, they, the, the intention is good, you know, people that want to see growth and just really unity, you know, among everyone. Um, but sometimes, again, it's the verbiage that catches people off. I think we're in a, a society where people are obsessed with language to the point where it's a barrier and people aren't always bridging, right? And so mm-hmm. that's kind of my specialization. Like, okay, let's just let's just try to remove that verb, like that word, that verbiage. Don't fixate on that because that might be something that was used, but let's let's look at the intent of the heart. Let's try to get to the heart of the matter. Caters, you know, you're dealing with really intellectual types of people, very cerebral type of people that tend to speak um, very matter of fact about topics rather than speak genuinely about topics mm-hmm. and about where mm-hmm. they're at in their journey. So that's usually what we're dealing with. When people do want to really go deeper, I take on clients one-on-one. And usually these are clients that have positions of real power. There are their stakeholders or influencers in government or corporations or schools. And the expectation is they're supposed to know all of this already. And so sometimes my clients are white and they don't Mm want to enter into a space where they're going to appear to be anti-black or the white person Mm -hmm. that knows everything. I mean, these are really tricky waters because then you think about the other children, you know, that might be feeling kind of, and I'm grateful in a way that half the country is not face-to-face during this time because with youth and elementary school kids, sometimes parents and all the emotions going on at home, and depending on what is being seen on TV or heard, you know, you can have kids sometimes acting out when they go into those social settings and start not wanting to even be around white kids. You know, black kids don't want to be around sure. white kids. And then the white kids that aren't doing anything, right, or start to feel some kind of way. So sure. I, I personally feel like our youth is 20 steps ahead of us, but – Mm-hmm. I still think we have to be very cognizant of how we talk about this, you know, the civil unrest in front of our, our children. Um, sure. Because they have to be able to understand and process it, yeah. Sure, sure. I have a caller uh, that has just dialed in from uh, South Florida. Caller, are you there? Okay, go ahead with your question or comment. Um, so, Lisa, as someone in a new leadership role, how do I help my department of teachers better prepare themselves in the classroom when dealing with students who may be exposed to racism at home or within their family? Oh, my gosh, that's such a good question. Um, what's your name? Kayla. I didn't catch your name. Hi, Kayla. Okay, so Hi. I think, you know, the biggest thing with teachers is creating a space where there can be that unfiltered talk. So when I created this space on Thursday night, 7 to 9, bring your drink, let's hang out and have fun over Zoom, 
it was just that. And it's, it's really continued to be that where people could just come and I facilitated the discussion. But you also have to know your specialization and your capacity. I could see like, okay, I can facilitate this discussion, but I'm going to need some support. And so I called on my friend, Dr. Davis. She's a vice chancellor over um, workforce development. She does a whole bunch of stuff, but she was like, yeah, I'll help you co-facilitate. And that really allowed us to be able, because she's, she's different than me personality-wise. So that allowed us to really bounce off each other where I wasn't taking things personal because being a, being a black biracial woman, some of the conversations that come up, it doesn't matter how skilled you are. I mean, I've been doing this kind of work for 15 years. Sometimes you, it, you, can, you can't help but be emotional, right? So having a co-facilitator help that space. So I would recommend providing a space where you could just dialogue, you know, about topics that come up, social justice related, anything that they want to talk about, and try to have it where you have a topic beforehand so you can do a little bit of research on it, provide a little bit of reading to your staff, and then enter into this unfiltered kind of like hour long, or I, I make it two hours long, um, opportunity for people to come and just kind of grapple. You're welcome to, um, you know, go to our website. It's antiracismed.org. And if you fill out the little intake form, I can send you information and we can even hop on a call too offline and go more into detail about your specific needs. I'd love to, to help you with that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank You're you welcome. so much for calling in. Um, and so, Lisa, I know that there are, um, and, and thank you, Kayla, for, for calling in because I know there are a lot of, of teachers that are out there, but um, leaders that are are grappling with a lot of the the unrest that has happened, particularly over the last um, you know six seven months. Um, there's been quite a bit happening, and and um, don't know where to start. And so I think you are a great resource, and uh, I'd encourage anyone to to call and and try to get some some direction on this. Um, what I you know, I've had a lot of recent, um, I'll say, struggles with with uh, groups of leaders and educators about uh, the work itself. And um, I'd love to get you to say a little bit about this, because the issue has been in organizations where, uh, like schools, where there's a lot of work that has to be done, not just anti-racist work or even anti-discriminatory work, but there are other objectives that have to be met. And mm-hmm. so I'd like to hear your thoughts on the, the fact that anti-racist work is important work. It's just not the only work to be done. You know, we have to figure out how to balance the, the objectives that we have in any organization so we could be in the manufacture of airplanes or the manufacture uh-huh. of bicycles that there are there there's work to be done um how do we how do we do this in a way that doesn't seem like uh incrementalism uh but that seems like we're making uh we're making progress and paying attention to the full um kind of platter of work that has to be done a great question. The first word that comes to my mind, it's what you said. It was balance. But with that, I'd add intentionality. And with intentionality, I add strategy. So I think the number one thing is creating a space 
you know, so creating a space where people can come, and I like to call it, you know, and this is something that people use a lot of, but we hold space, where mm-hmm. that unfiltered dialogue, where people can have what we like to call care conversations, a care hub, it's unfiltered, two hours, we know that mark really works, and opportunity, this is what we're going to talk about, here's the topic, give you what we call a growth nugget at care, we're going to give you a little bit of history about this topic, what are your takes on it? What did you experience this week? How are you guys feeling? A real check-in. And we really hold people to it. Like, okay, the two hours is up. You know, now this is your opportunity on your own to do some self-reflective work where there's just even some, like, you know, homework, you know, assignments that go right. along with it that they can go over through the week in their own time to stretch their empathy. Now, after that, we've got to jump into other business. You know, we have to get into the other things because our students are counting on us. Or I'm, you know, running a company. You know, my employees are counting on me. But do I have to, as a CEO, have a space where we can talk about anti-racism? Absolutely. So I think when you're, you have that balance, you're intentional and you're strategic, you're making space, you're not tone-checking, you're going to have people that are more equipped and are committed to doing the other work because you set the tone. But it can't be the only work that's done, and I do agree with you. And I think sometimes – what happens in conversations is people monopolize the conversation because you don't have a skilled facilitator. And that's where what we're branching out and doing is providing training for people to come and learn how to really facilitate these conversations. Um, mm-hmm. So teachers feel empowered, but also they exercise balance. <laughs> they exercise intentionality and they're very strategic. So mm-hmm. it's a skill to be a, a really good facilitator um, where sure. you don't lose the conversation and you don't lose the room. Sure, sure. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I, as I've said to you in our earlier conversations, I'm so looking forward um, to working with you. And it's just, it's been a real pleasure. Um, for those of you who are interested, please uh, feel free to look up uh, Lisa and her organization, CARE. Uh, Lisa, you want to share your, your website again? Sure. It's antiracismed.org. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank so you much. so much. Yes, and we really appreciate having you. And for those of you um, who are going to join us again next time, we're going to have another show in December where we have uh, a number of, of principals who are dealing with the COVID crisis. And we're going to hear a little bit about what they uh, have encountered since um, our students have been back in school. And so until next time, go well, stay well. Thanks again, Lisa. Bye. Thank you.